You're listening to Bizarre Buffet, a podcast of all-you-can-eat weird. I'm your host, Mark Toriello. I'm Jen Wilson. And I'm Mark Bluestein. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. When we first went in, one of the people said, who are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. All right. So... Episode four. Yes. Um, yes. Episode four of Bizarre Buffet. Yeah. Oh my God. We're here now. It's episode four. Four is four a good number? I don't know. Four is a magical number because it's my favorite of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you know what? It must be. A fantastic number then it is a good movie well i just looked up online what does the number four symbolize oh do, do you have uh does it have any good information um yes it's the number of justice and stability that you need to keep in your life oh and also it says here resonates with loyalty patience wisdom and trust Wow. Well, then I could say I have um, none of number four in my life. Well, wait, 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 wait. Uh, or, uh, it also says it may be. You do with me, baby. Oh, well, yes. But well, that's true. It also says that um, it symbolizes your aspirations and passions that you have. And look what we're doing. We're making a goddamn podcast. <laughs> oh my god, so number four is fucking amazing. Yes. Can I say fucking? Yes. Is that okay? A, okay? You can actually. Okay. Yes, so it's fucking amazing. We'll take it. Alright, so what's on the menu this week, Mark? Oh my god, well I'm glad you asked. We have a very special guest and his name is James. And James has an Instagram page called Visits with Gacy. Do you guys, do you guys know what that might be referencing? I'm going to think, you know, the serial killer John Wayne Gacy. That is 100% correct. Oh. Yes, so, gold star for Jen. Yes, Jen. Serial killer gold star for Jen Wilson. <laughs> it's here. So, Mark, can you tell everyone listening just like a quick overview of John Wayne Gacy? Because I think a lot of people know who he is, but then we might have people that don't absolutely so i'm gonna give you guys like a very quick briefing because i would like um james to go more in detail and and i'll yeah and i'll explain that afterwards but john wayne gacy is a serial killer from chicago um he's famously known as being uh pogo the killer clown you know he dressed up he he absolutely is So he was convicted of killing, I believe, 33 men and boys or like. Yes, you are correct. You're correct on that. All boys. Yes, all boys. boys. He was a real um, man eater, as they say. Um, So. Is that that joke in terrible days? We can Well, I mean, like they were teenage boys for the most part. So they were, and they mostly worked for him, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and isn't that part of the song Man Eater as well? Isn't that a lyric? (laughs) Sorry. Man eater, make them work. Make them work hard. Wait, I Oh, the, the Nelly Furtado one, right? Yes, I, because... Oh. Not the Hall and Oates. Yeah, well, I mean, I... Exactly, there's two... All right, here we go. So it's, he's a man-eater, make you work hard, make you spend hard, make you 
<laughs> She's living her moment. Everybody, Jen Wilson, right. performing man. Eater. Wow. But You're welcome. Like, but um, he actually made his victims work because a lot of times he made them dig their own graves under the house. Yeah. Yes. And that's another so thing that rude. people, I you know, know, about he buried all of his victims underneath the house. Yeah, in the crawl space of the house. And, you know, I... God, I, I've seen many documentaries and, you know, there's always bits and pieces that stand out. But one thing I remember in particular was that the neighbors really had a lot of issues with the smells coming from his house, which is awful and not funny. I mean, these are people who lost their lives, but you're like, oh, my God, those poor people who had to live next door to John Wayne Gacy. I mean, I think something else, too, that was just that blows my mind is the fact that he did this under a roof with a wife, two children, and his mother. Yes. Oh, damn. Yeah. I didn't yes. know it was a full house. Yeah. Oh, it was a full house. Yeah, Michelle, Danny Like Tanner, Michelle Tanner style. All of that, yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine that version of Full House, John Wayne Gacy's Full House? Oh, what Listen, a Listen, I think we should reach out to Bob Saget. Bob. <laughs> Bob. And uh, what's his name? <laughs> John Jeff, Stamos. John Stamos. Um, maybe the Olsen twins will actually come back for this one. They they probably will. Yeah. They look like corpses, so yeah. it would be appropriate. There you go. Just, <laughs> you know, throw some makeup on them and they're ready to go. So, like, yeah. So he had, what, I think they found 33 victims. Yes, um, that they know of. That there, they know of. There's a lot of speculation that he probably killed many more than just 33 yeah um but you know that's all in terms of the people who are documented right and i think his jig was that he was possibly a homosexual closeted well pretty sure that his wife left him at least from what i saw from that awful film gacy oh yeah he found handcuffs and um gay porn magazines Yes. In the basement. Mm-hmm. In the basement or in the garage. Yeah, somewhere somewhere in the house she found his um his secret videos and magazines. Um but James is a very interesting guy, our guest today. Uh yeah, like I said, his page is called Visits with Gacy. And what makes his story particularly fascinating is that James actually visited John Wayne Gacy in prison for two years, and he even saw him up to, I believe, 40 days before he was executed. He even taught a course, um, a serial homicide course for 18 years. I feel like he'll have a lot to share with us about his experiences um, and hopefully give us some more background on John Wayne Gacy for you know, some people listening who may not know. And yeah. While we're on this topic of serial killers and meeting them or maybe seeing them in prison, if you guys could actually meet a serial killer, what serial killer, dead or alive, would you want to meet? Mm. You go first, Jen. I'm scared. I really? I mean... <laughs> no, not really, but I just... I would probably have to say Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, good one. Yeah. But... I just, you know, I, I, why, why, um, why eating body parts? Like, that, that's just what I really want to know. Like, why cannibalism? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. 
Most certainly. Um, Do you think he just, he probably liked the taste? Or maybe it's like a gratification thing. I mean, maybe. But we'll never know because he's dead. Yeah, we'll never know. But all I know about, well, the most notable part about Jeffrey Dahmer to me is a documentary I'd seen where his neighbor said they used to eat dinner at each other's houses. And this poor woman was like, oh, my God, I probably ate human meat at Jeff's apartment. And I was like, you poor thing. Oh, I think Lord. she did. I think she probably did, too. Oh, mm. I know. Maybe she'll come on the show. Anyway. Well, like I said, I have, you know, family friends out in Milwaukee who, you know, were police officers during the investigation. And That's right. I forgot about Ooh. that. Yeah. Guilty. Yes. I remember as a kid, like we drove by the apartment complex that he lived in and it was it was knocked down. Like as soon as as soon as, you know, he was sentenced it was it was destroyed yeah they tend to do that a lot like let's do a Dahmer let's do a Dahmer road trip yeah Jeffrey Dahmer road trip I think all you can eat weird all you can eat weird (laughs) sponsored by Bizarre Buffet all you can eat body parts yeah wow what about you Mark oh boy I mean you know the fun don't stop but For me, I have always been fascinated. Now, you know, once again, we are not promoting um, idolization of these people. This is coming from a historical and fun perspective. Um, My favorite would have to be... Or Or who would you meet? (laughs) Oh, I would love to meet... Well, I mean, I would not love to meet this person because I I would not survive. Um, The Zodiac Killer, though, is fascinating to me. Yes. You know, the Zodiac Killer was just such, um, you know, I think, I feel like he kind of defined Boogeyman because no one ever found out who he was exactly. I mean, they have some ideas of who he was, but it was just so cryptic and weird and, you know, it still drives people crazy, including myself. That I mean, if you think about it, he's kind of like a modern day Jack the Ripper. Yeah. 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 You could definitely draw that comparison. So I think it's just a fascinating stories so yeah but um mark who's yours well i before i say mine i think if you met the zodiac killer you would probably be cracking one of the biggest unsolved mysteries and also it might be a woman for all we know hey very well could be and you know what she could be zodiac killer yeah i mean why not right and while we're talking about female empowerment, my choice <laughs> is I would meet Eileen Warnos. Oh, such a good one. She, I yes. Can oh I can yes. I take back my answer? I want I, Eileen. I would love to take back my answer. We, <laughs> can all, we can all get a Ouija board. Look, Mark and I actually have handwritten letters yes, from Eileen Yes, you do. Eileen I know. Warnos. Isn't that the one that's framed? It yes, is. Yes, it's framed in uh, our doorway. And it, it was my 30th birthday gift. I have never been more surprised and never knew that I could have a better soulmate, honestly. Yeah. That was the I, gift of gifts. Thank you. I'm the best. But yeah. um, we can always take a Ouija board, put it on the letters and talk to her. But she's my favorite because I see her more as a feminist and a empowered woman Absolutely. that just 
And I think that the system screwed her over. I think that society literally railroaded her ass. Oh, good quote. Said. Yeah. And I just, I think she's a victim of circumstances. Now, is it right for her to go out and kill people? Probably not. But I, I think that a lot of the people that she was probably targeting were assholes in the first place. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm pro Eileen. <sighs> and, you know, I just think her story is more of a tragedy yeah, well, because, that's like, how I feel. you know, she she claims that a lot, like, her killings were out of self-defense. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, it goes to show you, and I know, like, with, like, our current, you know, global situation, you know, our prison system, our legal system is fucked. It sure is. So why would we, you know, even for a minute begin to think that back then in the 90s, or late eighties that anything was going to be favorable towards her. Well, I mean, I know she was uh, like later in like the serial killer scene, but you mm-hmm. have people like Dahmer, you have people like John Wayne Gacy, you have, you know, people like Charles Manson and Richard Ramirez. And during a time where you, you know, there was no classification of, borderline schizophrenic mm-hmm. and you know bipolar disorder and you know manic depression it was just like you were weird you were an oddball you were an mm-hmm. outcast yeah you know so i sometimes i think like if they were alive today if they were like our age how would they be different yeah that is deep girl it's deep if you think about it with the with the research we have now would they be these crazy serial killers yeah like if they had more options maybe or more uh things accessible Mm -hmm. that are today i know it's and uh... that's that's probably why serial killers were more popular in like the 70s 80s because there was not a lot of resources out there for mental health i mean hence the show mindhunter but I'm definitely really looking forward to listening to what James has to offer. Absolutely. I think he'll have a lot of um, interesting and insightful things for us. And we're super excited to hear all about his story. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will even distribute your podcasts for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I mean, how cool is that, right? It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On with the show. So we're talking with James today, and like we said earlier, James has a page on Instagram, and it's called Visits with Gacy. So, James, could you tell us a little bit about how your journey began in terms of your relationship with John Wayne Gacy and some background on who he is for people who may not know? Sure. Um, People find it odd when I tell the story, uh, when they ask about Gacy, because I actually remember when John was arrested. I think I was eight or nine years old. I remember sitting uh, in the living room with my dad, and we lived in... Uh, southeast Missouri, and we received uh, one of the local stations was an Illinois affiliate, 
And I remember whenever he was arrested, I remember the, the uh, footage of them bringing these body bags out of the house and, uh, I'm, you know, looking at my dad and asking him, say, hey, what's what's going on? And my, of course, my dad tried to shelter me. And he said, you know, there's just some bad people in this world. So we sort of jumped forward and then, um, you know, finished high school and went to college and um, was a criminal justice major and got interested uh, in certain aspects of criminal justice field. And then uh, serial murder kept popping up. And I had done a few papers on various serial killers like Ted Bundy, uh, one, you know, on Manson, people like that. And then I did one on Gacy. And uh, I remember uh, I did my undergrad degree in Kentucky. And I remember uh, sitting and um, watching a show about John Wayne Gacy that WGN had made. It was like a television movie that they had made called To Catch a Killer, where Brian Dennehy played John Wayne Gacy. We were talking about yeah, that the other we day. Saw, um... Yeah, and uh, just as far as it's the, the Gacy story is concerned, you know, there's a lot of uh, artistic uh, endeavor when you talk about, you know, made from television movies. But WGN did a great job on that movie. Brian Dennehy did a great job as Gacy. However, when I finally did get to meet Gacy, it was, you know, polar opposites of what I was, I was expecting. But, you know, the first airing of that was like a, a two or four hour showing. I think it was two nights. And uh, the last night of the airing after uh, the show concluded, WGN ran a special about John Wayne Gacy. And during that special, they kept showing comments about Gacy and Gacy had actually written a letter back to WGN contesting the story. And uh, oh my God. I actually was recording it and um, I paused it and stopped because they showed a letter and on the letter it had John's prison address. So I wrote it down. That's so smart. It sounds like something the three of us would try to do. So, you know, I was like, you know, nothing may come of this. I didn't expect an answer. So wrote a letter, said I was interested in the case, talked about, you know, remembering when he was arrested, asked some basic questions, you know, do you feel any remorse? You know, the basic questions that, you know, any criminal justice major would. And I sent it off. And before I get to that, you know, mentioning John Wayne Gacy, uh, even today, a lot of people aren't familiar with the case. John Gacy was a Illinois serial killer who killed 33 young men and boys. Um, I was actually fortunate enough in, while I was in grad school in October of 1994 to get to spend an evening with, uh, Mr. Robert Ressler, who, you know, was a former FBI profiler, you know, head of the behavioral science unit. Now he's the one who coined the term serial killer. Is that correct? You're correct. John, uh, we started talking about John and, and Mr. Wrestler grew up in Illinois. So he was familiar with John. He had talked to him, you know, he did one of the early interviews with uh, Gacy uh, before, you know, really people understood what serial killers were because, you know, in the very beginning, you know, it was just like mass murder was the common term used for everything. Every, right. every serial killer was a mass murderer. And I remember us sitting down and, um, eating uh, supper and uh, he said, you know, I remember going into the house and the one thing that stood out in my mind is I seen this map and there were all these pinpoints across the United States. And he said, based on what I seen, I truly believe that Gacy had more victims than the 33. And, you know, I was actually reading um, a little bit more about his case and there are theories that there were more than 33. Someone like John, uh, after I got to know him, uh, I would 100% agree with you. 
there had to be more than 33. A lot of people don't believe that. They think that all the victims were accounted for. I don't. I think they're all. And I also, I also read somewhere within the article that I was reading that there are people who also believe he had an accomplice with him. Really? I never heard that. Yeah, there's actually probably, uh, John actually used to talk about two accomplices. Um, you know, I'm not going to mention the names because uh, the both of them. No, of course. Uh, and I wouldn't want to open anything up for any sort of slander or anything like that. But, um, you know, even in the, if you go back and watch the Brian Dennehy movie, The Cape Killer, you'll see there's inferences made about having accomplices or people that knew about the situation. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, it amazes me to this day, knowing what I knew about the neighborhood at the time and how close those houses were together that no one didn't find out or didn't know that something was going on. And even the people that worked for him didn't know, you know, he basically had, I know this is sort of a, a a sick way to put it, but you know, he was, he, he had his own buffet line. He was pulling victims from his own job is what he was doing. Well, you know what, James, that is perfect for the title of the show. The Our Bizarre Buffet. Yeah. There you go. And I think the thing that just blows my mind is the fact that, he had a family living under a roof with him while he was committing these murders and burying the bodies in the crawl space in their basement. Absolutely. You know, he had his second wife and she had two young female, uh, daughters and uh, doing this the entire time, you know, bringing boys in and they would go out in the, the garage area. And I think that his wife at the time knew that something was going on. But, you know, you know, he, he his downfall came with Robert Peast. And that's pretty much just a real quick synopsis. And I'll get back to to how I began, if you want me to, at this point. Uh, and then I'll, I'll give more detail about Gacy as we go on. So, uh, like I said, I was uh, in, in my undergrad years in Kentucky and um, sent the letter off. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'll never hear anything from this guy. Or maybe I'll hear something back about um, – one of his paintings, you know, because that's that's what we, you know, knew about John Gacy. He sold, sold paintings and and uh, through the mail. So about, I guess it was probably about seven to ten days later, I received a letter back, and I actually had to go to the post office because Gacy didn't put enough postage on it. Oh my God! Like really, dude? Well, let me tell you, that was par for co- the course. He <laughs> oh was, boy, uh, he was all money driven and money based and tight as they come. So I literally had to go up to the post office and pay an additional like 32 cents to get the letter. And it was this thick letter. And uh, what it was, was about a two page letter saying, Hey, um, greetings, James, good for you. And uh, good for you to defend your school. uh, But there's so much you don't know about my case. The, the, this case is full of um, fiction and fantasy. And he always used to love to use a term called they knowingly knew that I was innocent mm-hmm. knowingly knew I didn't do this as if that's supposed to be some like extra proclamation of his innocence. Like, all right. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I sat there and I probably read the letter about 10 times. And uh, then he went on and he says, you know, you, you don't know anything about me, but I've got all this proof uh, showing my innocence. And, you know, if you want to, you're welcome to come visit. And I'm like, wow. you know what? <laughs> I'm going to do this. How many so, other people can say that they sat across the the, uh, the visiting room from John Gacy? 
I mean, no one that I know of. So James, before you met him, how did you feel? Because I'm sure it was probably the first time you were, you know, face to face with the serial killer. You know, that's a that's an outstanding question. There were so many mixed emotions. Um, my parents, you know, I let them know uh, they still lived in southeast Missouri. And, you know, they just, you know, were like very supportive, but like, you know, be careful. And uh, my gar- my mom, even to this day, she always says, you know, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> I'm into that because she says, you know, you can't let someone like that affect you because uh, they can, you know, especially if you spend a lot of time with them. So I prepared myself there, got to the prison, and uh, was still just sort of like not knowing how to feel, you know, sort of emotionally wrecked, drained. I didn't know what to think. And I go in and um, I'm just like a, a, a deer in headlights. I said, I, I'm here to uh, I see a guy. And they're like, well, who are you supposed to see? And I said, uh, I have a visit with uh, John Wayne Gacy. You know, that sort of smile and took my driver's license and wrote the information down and um, patted me down and searched me and said, well, you know, it's it's uh, it's Friday. So there's going to be a delay because there uh, there's various church services going on. So I had to wait there and I actually just chit chatted with them before I went in. Now, prior to me actually going on the visit, I actually called uh, a person that was involved in the correction system at the time and said, you know, hey, is there any problem with me, you know, conducting this visit? I think that I'm going to turn it academically based and I just want to make sure that there's not going to be any red flags or anything like that. And the guy says, no. Uh, there won't be anything you you know, you're doing it for an academic purpose. We don't see any issues. The only thing that the state of Illinois does not allow is you cannot videotape or audio tape the prisoner during your visits. And I said, okay. Fine. I said, I can take notes and got their approval. So I was pretty much approving it. And at that time, I don't even recall if John had to submit my name to our visiting list. Uh, things have changed a whole lot. You know, we, we're talking about over 25 years uh, that's happened. So, it's, it's, it's a lot different now, but I went in and was finally taken around and I had to go to the death row area. It was at the back of the prison and uh, went back and, you know, I hear all these clanging doors and stuff like that because I'd never been in trouble. I'd, I'd never been arrested. So I see these guards walking around and I walk up these areas, these steps, and then um, I go in front of this little guard-like door and there's guards there and there's this old uh, ledger. And it's sitting on like this old rack, which you almost what it looks like when you watch Harry Potter. And I think you see the uh, the guys in the bank, you know, have the big bank. Yes. Or whatever. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. that, that's what it reminded me of. And I sit there and I'm like, look, and they go sign in on the ledger. And I was like, OK, and I signed my name. in, And then they go, OK, right next to the ledger was this uh, steel door, the cage. And they opened it up. And they go go down to the third room, third room on the left or on the right. I'm sorry. Oh my God, that sounds like something from Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah, that. I'm actually. That's what I'm thinking. Silence of the Lambs. You know, they told me to go to the third one on the right, so I go there, and then I go through, and all of a sudden, clang! They lock the door behind me. Oh boy. Like, okay, this is going to be interesting. What did I sign up for? Because keep in mind, I'm thinking that this Joker, the size of Brian Dennehy, is fixing to walk through the door. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't yeah. know he was actually in the visiting room and uh, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. I go in the, the, um, the visiting room and literally, if you looked up in the corner, there was this fisheye camera 
in the, I guess, bottom right-hand corner of the room. And I was, I was like, there's no way that thing works. It looked like it doesn't work. And there was uh-huh. old, I guess what you call them, the Formica top tables, you know, the ones that you see in the late 60s like, and early 70s mm-hmm. that your grandmother had. And that's what's sitting there with like three chairs around it. And I'm like, oh, so we're not separated. So at, the, at that time at Chester at Menard, that's what you did when you visit. You were actually in the room with the person. And I was like, well, this is going to be an experience. And see, because I, I don't know what to expect. You know, uh, I get up and I just kind of walk and um, I'm the only one in the visiting area. And I'm waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden, uh, I hear somebody just start raising all kinds of hell. Oh. And it's this guy and he's going, you guys have messed me over again. You know, no, just loud and uh, it's, you know, GD this, GD that, UMFers have no respect for me whatsoever. And then that's when it hit me. I was like, that's Gacy. We open up the door, he walks down, and I walk outside the door and I go up and I shake his hand and said, I'm James. And he said, John, nice to meet you. And he had this ledger book that he was carrying. He had his handcuffs in front of him. As the the years went on, he would, on visits when I'd go, he would actually have like stuff for me to mail out for him, books or paintings or stuff like that. But I can't remember if that first time he did or not. But he did have some legal papers. So we went in there and uh, sat down and we just start talking, you know, just basically getting the niceties out of the way, uh, asking questions. And then he goes, you know, so you want to learn about me? He says, I've got the proof right here that will show my innocence. This is where it sort of gets um, interesting. We knew that I was going to write my graduate thesis on him. And, um, you know, there's a part of it where you have to, you know, acknowledge the person. You have to, in a sense, build trust and respect. Uh, and uh, I'm sitting there looking and he goes, you know, I'm considered the most notorious inmate in the state of Illinois. And so, yeah, I'm aware of that. Like, it's pretty hard not to be aware, dude. We get it. <laughs> well, I was going to ask what the dynamic was like between you two most people probably wouldn't want to hear this. He was one of those guys when you first met, you liked him instantly. I can understand completely how he was able to kill so many people, how he well, was able to yeah. get victims. Because John was one of those people, like I said, once you met him, you liked him. He had the yeah. gift of grab and charm. But not so much on that first visit, because whenever we started talking, we were sitting across the table from each other. And he says, you know, I'm the most notorious inmate in the, in the state of Illinois. And he had a blue papermate ink pen in his pocket. And he also had a lead pencil. He looked at me. He goes, you see this lead pencil? He says, I could take this pencil and jam it in your eye and kill you before the guards could get to you. Oh, oh my God. Oh, wow. I just kind of looked at him and he kind of smirked. And then I got up. And I pulled my chair right beside of him. And I said, why don't you show me the evidence that you have? And when I uh-huh. sat down, he shut the hell up. I'd called his bluff. And he knew right there that he wasn't going to punk me. And I called him out, and it was obvious. We started going over stuff. And, you know, uh, we talk about the things. And I had questions, and I was taking notes. And, of course, you know, John, uh, the entire time that I visited John, John absolutely showed no remorse or gave no apologies for any of the homicides. It was the first time in my life that I had met someone who had absolutely no appreciation for human life whatsoever. 
Wow. So, you know, we, we talked and, um, he showed me the stuff and, you know, we would joke in between. He, you know, he, he's from Chicago. So he was a Cubs fan and I'm from Missouri. So I was a Cardinals fan. So we would banter back and forth about that, you know, and, and just talked and talked about music. He at the time actually had just, um, received a visit from Gigi Allen. And, uh, I was aware of Gigi and I don't know if y'all, if you are, your audience is aware of Gigi Allen. Oh, we know who he is. We actually saw some Gigi Allen memorabilia at the museum of death in Los Angeles. Yeah, Gigi's a, a unique individual, and uh, you know John talked about that, and I was I was familiar with Gigi because of the uh, you know annex of Gigi's stage show and what took place there, and uh, you know just got along. Um, he may have given me a couple things about his case, just hit it off. Once I sat there and I called his bluff, never again during the two years that I visited with him did he ever try to pull anything like he did the first visit. Was with someone like him, you know, first meeting him visually, not intimidating, not like the Hollywood portrayal of like Brian Dennehy. With your interaction, what did you think Gacy got out of it? Yeah, because I mean, ultimately you gained his trust. He didn't try you again after you asserted yourself. So do you think he uh, enjoyed your company? Do you think he was attracted to you? Was it a million different things? Or do you think maybe he wanted you to sell his art? I sold a couple of pieces for him. I actually knew his art dealer at the time. So, you know, there were there were people that I knew when I was an undergrad who wanted, hey, they knew I was going to visit the Gacy. Hey, can you can you get me a piece? And I'd ask Johnny, said, yeah, you can you can sell your friend some art. Um, you know, and, and keep in mind, I think a lot of it had to do with I was expecting Brian Dennehy to walk through the door. And when I seen mm-hmm. this five, eight, you know, 230 pound uh, guy who was completely out of shape, it sort of set me at ease, I guess, a bit. And some of the fear went away. But um, I- I'll get to your question, but I, I did want to to back up and say, I remember one of the things that we specifically talked about that first was, it was the first victim that he picked up at the Greyhound bus station. And, you know, right now the guy's name, uh, I can't recall it. You know, he was one of the, the ones who, were, who was later identified. But John told me the story. He says to pick the guy up, asked him if he wanted to party. And uh, we went back to the house. Uh, we, we partied that night. We had sex. I woke up the next morning and um, I seen the guy coming at me with a knife. And I said, and how did you react? He said, we got, I got up, I jumped out of the bed and I went after him. He said, I wrestled the knife away from him. And I stabbed him in the chest. And he said, then you know, that was the worst thing I could have done. He says, because after I got off of him, I went and looked in the kitchen and he was actually cooking breakfast for me. He had the knife because he was going to ask me if he could cut the ham to fry some ham. And I said, well, why didn't you call the cops? He goes, man, there's no way they would have believed me. You know, after I did the animosity gig, he said, they wouldn't believe me. I just got out of prison. And I said, you could have mm-hmm. called the police. You know, I said, you could explain. Now they would have sent me, they would have sent me back kept trying to push him and he, he didn't want to, he didn't want to dwell on it because to hear John say it, you know, he never killed anyone except that first victim. I said, what about Rob Peace? And he said, well, I, I didn't kill Rob Peace, but I, I know the people who did. And same time when we were talking about Peace, he said, you know, the thing about Peace, he said, had Kozenzak been able to come in the door, he said he would have found Peace. He just didn't have a search warrant and couldn't come in the door. Goodness. I said, there's so many times that I think that they could have had you or people said something um, something could have been done. But back to your to your, your question, I, you know, I think John actually enjoyed the visits uh, that we had. 
Um, and, you know, if you look on the IG page, you can see there's a, there's various pictures of me and him together. There may be three or four. There's some when I actually yeah. put friends. Now, were you the only person who kind of visited him? Because you seem to visit him consistently. For a two-year period, I guess we probably had 12, 13 visits. He had people that was always curious. Mm-hmm. One of the most consistent visits. I was actually probably one of his top visitors. And, um, you know, especially the last year. Uh, because John always carried this, these ledgers around. He had one for every year that he was there. And I noticed that the last year I was actually at the top of the list of his contacts. I was probably within that, those first five people that he you know, had the numbers and everything for. So I, I was, I, was a, 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 I guess, a regular to come see him. Um, but I would often, he would say, hey, yeah, bring your friends. You know, if you look at some of the, uh, the IG photos, there's, there's pictures with me and friends, and I may have them blacked out uh, just, you know, mm-hmm. for the protection. Uh, but sometimes yeah. I would do that because uh, the vulgarity would arise during the course uh, of the visits. And he would start talking about stuff that, you know, I'm like, I am perfectly fine with whatever people want to do. But he would just get, you know, downright vulgar talking about stuff. And yeah. yeah. And I'm assuming that you're referencing the sexual details or going into things that would generally make anyone uncomfortable if someone was sitting there in front of them talking about random sex acts. Yeah, he would he would talk, start talking about sex and he would just push the envelope too far. Uh, I said, you know, I'm not gay. I said, I've got a girlfriend. I said, but I'm I have no problem with anybody in their sex life. I said, you know, as long as you don't harm children or don't harm each other, I'm fine with that. You know, yeah, as long as you don't kill 33 people, my, my friends who were gay would, would talk about sex. It was nothing that was so appalling or, appeal, you know, to me that, but he kept pushing it and pushing it. And it was just, it was seeing, I guess he would see how I'd react. And I was like, yeah. you're not going to get me to rack. I said, but you know, I, if I bring somebody up there, I said, you know, it's not appropriate for you to talk in front of women this way and things like that. And I think he finally got the picture. But yeah. you know, he'd always say, he says, well, I'm not homosexual. I'm not gay. I'm bisexual. And oh he, he said, you know, I, 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 I just, it was easier for me to have sex with men than it was women. And I said, John, that's fine. I said, but here's the deal. I said, all the people that are considered your victims are all male. And I yeah. said, 20 plus of them were found underneath your crawl space. I said, mm-hmm. how could you not know that something was going on? If there are other people involved, you weren't aware of it. I said, the smell alone, how could you live in a house with all those bodies, rotting bodies, and you not smell it? And that's when he would go into the, my dog would piddle all over the place. And I was like, really, John, it, it was one of those things where he tried to overcompensate. And, you know, I remember on one visit, uh, I got there and I actually carried a buddy of mine who was, uh, going to school with me. And, uh, we got there and, uh, and he had written letters to John. So John was, you know, familiar with him and we get there and we go to sign in and there's a guy who's in the parking lot and the guy has a, I think it was a West Virginia tag. That's what stood out about me. And the guy looked all disheveled and what have you. And I go to sign in and, you know, by that time, the people at the prison knew me, you know, they, they had seen me so much that, Hey, how you doing? You here to see John. Yeah. Sign in, you know, the drill. But the guy was behind us and he goes, I'm here to see Gacy. I was like, okay, because I was not aware of this. Mm -hmm. So um, the guy's name was Johnny. I'll never forget it. 
and uh, we go and get processed through. And actually, this time, it's one of the visits where John was actually waiting in the room. And John goes, hey, man, he goes, I, I know you wouldn't mind. He goes, I invited Johnny to come visit. I just wanted to get a chance to meet him. And I know you wouldn't care. So we're just all going to sit down and visit. I said, OK. This was a man who had driven uh, the entire night from West Virginia to come see John in Chester, Illinois, at Menard, you know, correctional facility. And the guy had driven all night just to do a visit. This guy was probably about 15, 20 years older than me. And I was 22, 23 at the time. And um, I guess the thing that probably disturbed me more than anything is um, here's this grown man sitting across the table from John Wayne Gacy. And he is basically holding onto every word he says. It was like seeing someone who had just met their idol. It's like this guy is completely captivated and enthralled with him. And it was really disturbing to see that because it was another chance of me to see how he could control somebody the same way he did when he was killing all those kids. He has a grown man who's waiting for him to say his next word so he can just sit there in awe of him. Yeah. And it's almost as though you were witnessing him do something that he would have done when he was out in the world killing people you were getting a glimpse into his world loved it he actually loved the attention he would always complain about being categorized or labeled as a serial killer but he loved the attention you know there were many times he says you know i have the most confirmed kills of any serial killer until gary ridgeway came along wow you really knocked him off his pedestal didn't you knocked him down a few pegs yeah and even even when uh jeffrey Dahmer was arrested i was i was talking about he goes i, I i'm not I don't know that man. I'm not concerned with that man. And he didn't want to talk about it because that would take away the attention from John. John wanted to be the top serial killer. John wanted to be the best prison artist. John wanted to be the one who had the most mail coming in of any serial killer in existence. He loved the attention. He loved mm -hmm. being, uh, you know, written to by celebrities, by, by uh, rock musicians, by, you know, anyone that, that he could sort of, brag about he loved it yeah and if you can kind of circle back for a second um to talk about the art aspect can you tell us about how the art evolved because i know that you were friends with his quote-unquote art dealer who did most of the dealings afterwards or during so can you tell us some things about that yeah i would absolutely love to know about how his art business was handled okay uh here's the the i guess the long or the short of it uh, John, initially, when he first got to prison, you know, uh, on death row, he started, I guess, you know, dabbling in painting. And then he started, um, he started, uh, you know, just basically selling through mail order. And he put out this little flyer that people would write to him. And, you know, they were affordable paintings, $25, $35. Uh, wow. And he would start, you know, he, he, he painted a lot of like fruit and animals and uh, landscapes in the early beginning. And then, you know, Rick got involved and he started painting some of the pogos and patches. And they're supposed to be, you know, his uh, his rendition of his character pogo and patches that he used to dress up as to do charity work for children when he was there. But what John would do is, you know, they, they look like paint by the number. Let's be honest here. And what he would do is he had a template that he had in his cell where he would basically put the template on and paint so many at a time and let it dry because it was oil paint and then go into the next one. 
So he did the clowns. He did the, the high ho series, which were the seven dwarves. He did skull clown. He did sex clown. He did signature bird series, which something about the signature bird series that a lot of people don't know. And a lot of people get pissed off today when they ask me questions about them. And I tell them about them, the signature bird series. If you've ever seen the signature bird series by John Gacy, you could probably Google it, look at it. It's incredible. It's these wonderful paintings of these birds. They're wonderful because John didn't paint them. Other and, than you know, on the row painted did those. And that was my other question for you, actually. Um, there was a rumor recently or an article about a lot of his paintings not being done by him. So it was a bit of a controversial thing for collectors who paid a certain amount of you know money for them. Yes, here's the deal. Signature Bird Series where other inmates on death row, John would have them paint beautiful paintings and usually sold them like a series series of four or five. If you bought the Signature Bird series, uh, John would sign the back. He would sign the front and ballpoint pen. And in some instances, because he did it right in front of me, he goes, a lot of times I do this. And this this is the way that I say that I had a hand in the art. He would take out his paper mate ink pen and he would go around the beak of the birds. So if anyone owns the Signature Bird series, they're only signature bird series for Gacy based on the signatures alone. He did not paint them. Now, most of the other stuff that you mentioned, he did. The pogo, the patches, the skull clowns, the sex clowns, the witches, the Hollywood monsters, all that stuff. He did it. And then he started doing Elvis and Manson. He did old Elvis. He did new Elvis. He did Manson. He did Ed Gein. He did his own mug shots. He did, you know, any if anybody had money to pay, he would do it. He did Pennywise the Clown. I think there's a picture of me and John with a, a, a Pennywise the Clown. That was my last visit with him. You get into the question you were talking about. The collectors are worried about um, John not actually painting. I've actually seen that more and more lately within the past three or four years because John Gacy's paintings are the easiest paintings to counterfeit. He was executed. There started to being a flood of fakes and forgeries. I was I seen one this week. Someone sent me a picture. And it's so bad because the numbering system, John had a numbering system for his paintings. And these numbers are so high that John could have never got to those numbers because I know the numbering system that his before Rick stopped selling paintings for him. I know where the numbers were. You know, I even took Rick probably seven or eight paintings in April of 1993, basically a year before he was executed. And I know what the numbering system was. So now I'm seeing a lot of paintings that are coming out that are John Wayne Gacy originals that couldn't have been painted by John because he wouldn't have been able to complete those paintings at that time. His signature is easy to fake. That's the thing about it. Uh, you see drawings, you see some of the stuff. And, and, you know, I would probably say that there are paintings up in places uh, that think they have an original Gacy and don't uh, just because they're easy to forge. Now I hate it that people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on paintings now, but that's the truth. Uh, there are fakes out there. And then, of course, you know, people get pissed off. Well, this is real. You know, you just asked for my opinion. I, yeah, I, I, you know, I always refer to Rick, but I carried enough paintings out and I've seen enough paintings that he showed me to know how to, to essentially spot a real Gacy. Well, you know, that people don't like to hear that because they spend a lot of money. And I understand. I really yeah. do. But, you know, back to visits, he he always liked to brag and talk about what he was doing. He would talk about the paintings. He would talk about how, 
you know, he had all these friends in other places, uh, but he never would own up to the crimes. And I remember uh, on one visit, and this was getting towards the end of the visits, a friend and I, we had agreed before we went there, I said, I'm going to start hitting him with questions. And, and when I get done, as soon as I get done, I want you to ask another question because he can't lie the entire time because sometimes, you know, the stories would change up from visit to visit. So we were sitting there asking questions and we're, we're, we're done. And then we start talking about baseball. We're talking about the Cubs and the Cardinals again. And then out of the blue, I kid you not, John sits there and says, if I had only two more weeks. And I look at Mike and I said, what is he talking about? I said, John, we're talking about baseball. What are you talking about? Two more weeks. He goes, I had two more weeks. He said, I had, ordered, I had ordered 30 yards of concrete. And I planned to fill in the crawl space. And as soon as he said that, he was done. Oh. It was snapped out of something and went back to talking about baseball. It was oh the that I'd ever witnessed in my life. Wow, that's really chilling. And I'm glad that you told us about that because one of my questions for you was going to be, you know, was there a particular moment for you that stuck with you throughout all this time? And hearing that, you know, if I had two more weeks and it would have been filled with concrete, you know, that's a huge omission. That makes me think of the story about right before he died, it was within hours, his lawyer called and John Wayne Gacy was like, oh, I'll call you back. I'll call you back in two hours. Yeah. And his lawyer was like, what? In two hours, you're going to be dead. Crazy. Yeah, he wasn't thinking clearly at that point. And I've seen that. Um you know, a after we got through that visit, we got out in the car and I was like, Mike, I was like, did you just hear what he said? And, and you know, we, we basically just sat there in silence for the ride home it was just like, I can't believe that he actually, in a sense, admitted to something that he admitted to before. Uh, and that very rarely happened. And that was the first time that he'd ever done anything like that. And that's one of the things that stuck with me, you know, towards the end. And, uh, it, you know, it got to the point where, um, he expected me to visit. And I remember one time I got John, John said something and uh, he was being pushy and I didn't appreciate it. And I think it may have been a phone call or something. And uh, I said, you know what? And he, excuse my language. I said, you know, you can just fuck off. I said, I don't need this from you. And mm -hmm. uh, that was like, I had told him the worst thing in the world. I think it actually hurt his feelings. And he was like, well, you can fuck off too. But he ended up apologizing to me for the way he acted because it seemed like he was so fearful that I wouldn't come back to see him or that he wouldn't be able to write or talk to me on the phone. And, you know, I made it perfectly clear that, you know, hey, I've got a girlfriend. I come to visit you. I'm trying to write my thesis and stuff like that. So he knew when they up and up right off the bat. Yeah. Um, I do think that people did try to visit him to, to sort of maybe – uh, string along and try to make him think that certain things were going to happen and they weren't. That was another thing that sort of stood out that he was easily, his feelings were easily hurt just by saying things. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're supposed to be this tough guy who killed 33 people, the most notorious inmate in Illinois history. And I tell you to fuck off and bend you out of shape. What I'm curious about is what did your thesis consist of? Is it just about Gacy? Was it about serial killers? Clearly, you spent a lot of time with him and did a lot of research. It was a qualitative case study on John, basically. You know, of course, there's the basic, you know, information about the, the definitions and what have you with serial murder. But it was basically about him, a qualitative nature on him, you know, and, and qualitative uh, 
studies on serial killers are in a sense, you know, just case studies. And a lot of times they're not, there's considered soft research in a sense. But at the time when I was in grad school, uh, my, my professor uh, was, was encouraging that. You know, he, he had done a lot of qualitative research and he said, you know, case studies and case histories are what's going to stand the test of time. They'll be around forever. And what my premise was, was I was actually to, to give supporting uh, documentation about um, his his willing to kill and uh, his denial of being a homosexual and being gay and uh, what he was doing in a sense, he was killing what he hated most, which was himself, was in a sense trying to always seek that approval from his father. Right. And whenever, whenever you know, his dad. Uh, his, his dad, dad was, was like verbally abusive, correct? He was, his dad was verbally, physically abusive. And, you know, his dad uh, would always call him names and do things like that. And then, uh, when you know, whenever he was married and had a kid, you know, his dad started siding with him. But then in Iowa, when he gets arrested for sodomy, it's in a sense that his dad has that mind frame again. My son's got sent off uh, to prison for sodomy on a minor and a male minor at that. So since I was, it was almost, uh, I think I'd come up with homosexual denial syndrome where uh, he was killing basically uh, himself every time he did it. And the thing about it with John is John knew after he killed that first victim, it was in a sense, knowing what I know and all the research and studying him is that the first one was the hardest one for him. After he committed that, it was all easy to him. And it was like, you know, being on a drug. He had to kill to satisfy that desire. But he didn't want anybody to know about his background. He didn't want anyone to know about his sexual orientation. He didn't want anyone to know uh, that he was leading this double life, this Jekyll Hyde personality. You know, of course, he tried to pull that whenever he was arrested, saying there was multiple personalities. And, you know, that was so far from the truth. He knew what he was doing. He can, you know, sitting there talking to him during the course of our visits, he could remember specific dates and times and everything like that. You can't be crazy, you know, whenever you want to be crazy. You know, it's, yeah. it's in a sense all or nothing. And I think that's why William Kunkel was so popular with, you know, whenever he was prosecuting him and the closing argument where, you know, he had the crawl space area cut out and he had it in the middle of the courtroom. And what he did is they had the photos of the, all the victims and he basically took the victims and, you know, he said, show this man the same mercy, show these victims and he took every one of the photos down and started throwing them through the opening of the crawl space. And if you don't think that'll get a jury's attention, then I don't know what will. And John knew that. What What's so amazing to me is I could not get any of the confession statements while I was visiting him because had I had those, I would have questioned him on them. You know, I was like I was all about research. But I tried and I tried it. You know that I couldn't access the confession statements until after he was executed. And I had to go through the Freedom of Information Act to get those then, which was very frustrating. Because whenever he gets to Menard, he suddenly forgot that he's confessed to all these, these murders. John really didn't believe that he was ever going to be executed to the point where I wasn't so sure he was going to be executed that last year as well. Because during that last year, the state of Illinois had filed a lawsuit, if you will, against John because what they were going to do is try to charge him rent for the number of years that he had been on death row. And they were going to do this because they had found out that he'd been making money from the paintings and from selling photos and selling books. And he just sat and laughed about it. He goes, I wish they would. He goes, because you know why? He goes, I've been here going on 14 years. And he goes, if they do that, he goes, I'll appeal every year that they file a motion on and I'll have 14 more years to live. What was his whole outlook on 
being on death row? Like, was he content with it? I think he had just settled with it. But I really don't think that he thought he was going to be executed. He was the one, in a sense, who opened up the death row at Menard. He was the first inmate there. It was his home. The last visit I had with him was April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1994. And we talked, I think it was April 17th. And uh, at that, that's whenever we were talking. He says, hey, you know, if you want to come up for this thing, you're welcome to. And he, was, he in a sense, invited me to the execution. And I said, John, I said, um, uh, you know, I've enjoyed the time visiting everything, but I don't, I don't want to go and see you put to death. He says, well, okay. I just, I just wanted to let you know that. Uh, because I he think didn't, that's appropriate. Yeah, I think at the time he, he accepted that they were actually going to execute it. Uh, not that he wasn't still trying to fight it, but, but he knew at that point. And I think he realized that it didn't matter how much money he spent because, you know, he was, he was spending his own money for attorneys and everything else. Uh, he had the one nine hundred line. He had the book, a question of doubt, put out. You know where those books were were, were selling for like you know five hundred dollars a pop, uh, and he he was you know always raising funds. But but I ultimately think that he knew he was going to be put to death. Uh, but you know even up to my last visit, he he was still in a sense he was still John, but he he was starting being distant because the last visit I knew it was going to be my last visit, and I didn't want to take anybody with me. And I just, you know, wanted it to be me and him. And I knew it was going to be the last time that I was seeing him. And um, the, the one thing that I did, you know, you sort of self-analyze. And remember what I said earlier, garbage in, garbage out. I think in a sense, all those visits sort of affected me because it got to a point where there were certain things on TV that I had no emotion over because I had been in contact with someone like that. Someone who was evil and heinous. And like I said, had no appreciation for human life whatsoever. And that was one thing when I realized that I had to step away and in a sense step back. And I was in grad school and I had to start taking classes that I enjoyed and that were fun to me. Nothing that would, in a sense, bring back memories or any thoughts of that visit, especially after I got through defending my thesis and they signed off on it. But John, John was one of those people who could have a hold on people. Like I said, I mentioned Johnny, I can understand how people did that and how he had so many victims. Now, I know you're probably wondering about some of the things that he said in regards to a sexual nature. And if you want me to share a couple things with you, Ian. Well, while we have you, I don't want to be super salacious, but I heard uh, through the internet and just research that he might have dabbled a little bit in necrophilia. Do you have any input on that? I think that when he actually initially headed to, uh, you know, when he left home at 17 to go to the uh, mortuary in Las Vegas, when he left home to get away from his dad, I actually think there's some truth to that. I asked John about that point blank to his face. He goes, no, no, I never dealt with that. I, I wouldn't have sex with dead people. I was telling both Marks the other day, I saw that awful film, Gacy. But they yeah. kind of allude to the fact that he might have dabbled in that in the film. Yeah, I would absolutely think that. You know, but yeah, I believe John did that. I, I believe he did that with the last victim. I believe there was some form of necrophilia going on. And I think that it probably happened with many of the other victims as well. Because, you know, sometimes he would wait before he buried the victims. He also premeditated the murder because, you know, in a lot of instances, he would have his employees go and pre-dig trenches so he'd have a place to bury the bodies. Right. Because John was so big and overweight and out of shape that he couldn't have got down there and dug trenches and dug graves. Wow. 
So, you know, he, he planned it. He premeditated it. And that's another thing that they were able to prove the trial, that he premeditated these murders. He knew that he was going to kill. He knew that when he went out cruising, that he was going to get a victim for the night. Now, some of the guys got away. You know, Jeffrey Rignall was one of the victims that got away. And he wrote a book about it called 29 Below. And Jeffrey Rignall suffered horrible abuse at the hands of Gacy. If you Google his name and you can see the photos of Jeffrey Rignall, you can see his face where Gacy used chloroform on him and he burned his face horribly. But Rignall was one that it's very unfortunate because Rignall, in a sense, started trying to track Gacy down and try to have charges brought against him. And then, and then um, this man physically damaged Jeffrey Rignall with a fire poker because he sodomized him with a fire poker. And Rignall only settled, and he settled out of court for like two or three thousand dollars. And I, I thought that was so sad. And you know, they even the trial broke down on the on the stand based on the stuff that that John did to him. It was just absolutely horrifying. And uh, Gacy, there's no doubt in my mind that Gacy didn't enjoy every bit of torture and everything that he did to those people and to those kids, to those men. It was just, he, you know, he, he knew that there was no way they could get out of the handcuffs. You know, yeah. that's why he, he was so cocky and so bold that on a couple of occasions he did what he, he, he did doubles night. That's where he killed two victims in one night. I think he did that on two occasions. You know, he told one kid, he says, you know, your friend, I killed him in the other room. And then he took the kid in there and showed him that he killed his buddy and sat there. Again, like I said, no appreciation for human life whatsoever. Had it not been for the Des Plaines Police Department and their constant surveillance on him, there's no telling what he would have done had he been able to get away with this. Because I think he would have kept killing. He would just have to keep, he would have just had to start using the, the Des Plaines River and other dumping grounds or move, go to another house and start it. But I know on one occasion he was, uh, I guess he was trying to push the envelope and see what, if he could offend me on one uh, visit. And he was talking about the things that he liked to do in his cell. And these are sexual in nature. And he said that he always uh, liked to do two things. One was called head over head. And the other was the shot glass trick. What are both of those? I haven't done those before. I will get into it. <laughs> and I'm looking at kind of like what you guys just said what are you talking about? And I guess you're going to have to explain that. To me. What I really like to do is shot glass trick. And I said, is this like the rope trick or anything like that? And he just kind of laughed. He said, no, the shot glass trick is where I take a shot glass and I'm in my cell and I masturbate and ejaculate in it. And then I shoot it back. Oh, oh, oh. My God. okay. Said, and that's a trick. He goes, yeah, that's what I call it. And then he said, well, there's another one. And he said that there's head over head. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear this. What is this going to be? <laughs> and he says, this is where I lay back on my bunk and I tilt my lower extremities up where I can masturbate. And my goal is to ejaculate on my face. Oh, wow. What a delightful individual, truly, in all aspects. We'll talk about clown makeup, but in his defense. <laughs> I could imagine that being in that sort of position is a really good ab workout. Both of those just came out of the blue. And I was like, where did this come from? You know, wow. it, it just, I guess he was just trying to shock and awe at that point. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was amazing that, that 
he got to that number. And then I get, then I think again, it's like, you know, maybe it wasn't amazing because like I said, he was, he was well-liked. I can see how he was able to get victims. I can see how people liked him. I can see how he had these big 4th of July parties. But again, like I said, he was able to wheel and deal. He had tons of friends. He had tons of friends while he was in prison. He had people that wanted to see him. Um, it was just one of those things. And I think a lot of people were just sort of like ultimately, uh, you know, captivated by Gacy in a sense, just by what he had done. And he was so easy accessible because let's be honest, I can say it, but how many other people can say, yeah, I sit across the room from a serial killer. So James, with your Instagram, I'm wondering how it changed everything for you right now, because I could imagine it being more therapeutic for you, considering that your connection with Gacy was probably confusing, a little traumatic, probably a little bit stressful too. And how has the response been from the public since you started your Instagram page? I think it, I think it is sort of just like a process for me after these years, you know, I'm, I'm able to talk about it more. I get asked to talk about things. I've been teaching a serial homicide class at, at, at the local college for the last 18 years. So that's part of the therapy. Don't dwell on it. You know, my boys uh, don't know anything about what daddy did or who daddy visited. You know, at some point I'll sit down and talk to them about it, but you know, we own, we all have our own, I guess, sorts of therapy we need to go through as we get older. And I think that that's probably a good thing to use. It's sort of just, in a sense, it it helps me remember some of the things that happened and relives it. And, you know, I get a lot of questions from people. And um, I don't mind talking about it because it's something that happened to me. Like I said, not very many people can say that they've been able to do the things that I've been able to do. Well, you know, you have an important story. And I feel like it has a lot of historical significance, you know, regardless of anything else. I think it's important for people to hear your experiences and to learn about them. You know, John was one of those people that uh, I'm sure based on what we know from serial murder and serial homicide, that there's probably somebody out there just as mean, just as bad as he has. He just hasn't been found out yet. You know, we know based on historically speaking, there's somebody right now sitting right around the dinner table at night, sitting there with, you know, um, headless torsos talking to him. That person just hasn't been found yet. That's the thing about it. There is evil in this world, and it's a sad thing. Those kids didn't deserve to die. That's the thing. That, um, but, you know, that's a question that I ask my students in my class. Everything that you know or everything that you've read, do you believe that there's such a thing as being born evil? As I teach the class more and more years, as the years go on, the response is more evened out. It used to be, no, there's no such thing as somebody being born evil. But now people are thinking the other way. I think it's possible. I mean, I also think if you look at some of these serial killers who kind of are like household names, um, you look at them and you see that they've actually had traumatic upbringings. There's some sort of trauma in their lives. And like I was saying, I was saying the other day to both Marks, you know, when with John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, these were serial killers who, you know, at a time there was really no diagnosis for, you know, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. What would happen if these men were alive? Would they be medicated? I think that we still don't know enough about them. That's the problem. I don't think that research has been uh, focused on what we could and find out about serial murder. 
most of the research is independently done by private researchers, academic research. The FBI really doesn't focus on it much anymore. They do, but you know what I mean? Or if they're doing it, we don't find out about it. I guess because there's certain things that need to be kept secret. It concerns me because serial murder is not stopping. It's still going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure we'll ever be able to stop it. Right. And I mean, like you said, you know, um, there's always going to be someone out there in the world who hasn't been discovered yet. And unfortunately, I think that evil will probably always exist till the end of time. And I hope to the gods that Bizarre Buffet (laughs) will last as long as evil does. Oh, God, let's pray. Anyway, you know, um, with that being said, James, really, like, Thank you so much. Um, This has been really so terrific. And once again, for everyone listening, um, you can find James on Instagram and it's called at visits with Gacy. You should definitely follow him. Uh, He has amazing content. And is there anything you'd like to add to this, James? You know, and if anybody has any questions, you know, if you hit me up on IG, I'll respond to you. Um, You know, I, I try to answer questions when people ask. Um, one thing that I, I would like to say in closing, and, and this was a question that somebody asked me, and it's 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 pretty important, and you know, it's in a sense the therapy thing. But um, do I ever have nightmares about John or anything like that? And I have to be honest. Um, right after he was executed, about a month after he was executed, I did have a nightmare, and uh, that was you know over 25 years ago. But since then, I haven't. So. It was a learning lesson for me. And, you know, I'm just glad I'm able to share it. And we're very glad to have you here. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so. This concludes episode four of Bizarre Buffet. I'm going to thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and help us out so we can get out of our day jobs. Oh, we beg of you, please. I'm not begging anymore. But follow us on Instagram (laughs) at Bizarre Buffet. And what else am I missing, Mark? Because I'm so Uh, shitty at this. No, you're fine. You should follow um, our lovely guest, James. Please follow his Instagram. It is at Visits with Gacy. He's an incredible person. Follow him. Um, You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is at Bizarre Bizarre Buffet Podcast. So a little bit different from the Instagram, but... You know, thank you for listening. Um, And, you know, stay bizarre, I suppose. All you can eat weird. All you can eat weird. Goodbye.